Well, today we finish our series, Urban Legends, wrapping it up. And this week's Urban Legend is traditional marriage roles are antiquated social constructs. And I was toying with that Urban Legend earlier in the week, and a very good friend who will remain anonymous said, I don't think that should be your Urban Legend. And I said, well, why not? Thinking there was something content related that they objected to. I, said, I, don't, I actually don't understand about half the words. And I said, oh, oh, okay. Well, let me explain to you what social constructs are. And, and so I, I thought probably, because um, I have friends like that that are just brutal with me. Like, okay, you use, you use big words. Could you just stop and explain that to me? And, and then I have to, it's a good reminder to me. Um, so let's stop and talk about the urban legend before we talk about the urban legend. Uh, traditional marriage roles are antiquated social constructs. I think we all can see it's, it's fairly readily av- available and visible to us that um, the culture around us is very far afield from anything resembling traditional marriage roles. That's the direction of that, right? So um, let's talk about marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Love. Woo, love that dream. Anyway, sorry. I would, I'll just go on and do the whole thing. I'll just go on and do the whole thing, right? Um, I, I love, as we, as we talk about this idea of marriage today, uh, Robert Fulgram said, we're all a little weird. And life is a little weird. And when we find someone whose weirdness is compatible with our weirdness, we join up with them and we fall into a mutually satisfying weirdness. And we call that weirdness love. And I think that's probably one of the best definitions I have ever read in my life. And so I think, um, you know, if, if you were here back uh, when, since the launch, back in the win- last winter, we were in a series called Foundations in the Garden, which I actually get to teach to the Adelphia students later this month for four days. But we talked a lot about love is a decision first, right? It's not the feeling. Feelings are great. Feelings come after. But love is an act of the will. It's volition. It's the decision to sacrifice. That's to give yourself up, to die to yourself for the good of another, right? That's the object of your love, the recipient of that love. It's a decision to sacrifice yourself for the good of someone else. And so Jesus said, um, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And then, and then he goes to the cross and he models love for us and that he gives himself up for us, right? And while we tend to think of marriage in terms of romantic love or what uh, the Greeks would call eros love, it actually requires a great deal of this volitional commitment love that, that takes the initiative, that really uh, decides it's going to dig in and work hard, right? And that's what defines agape, which is God's love for us. Um, so let's define our terms of the urban legend. Um, traditional marriage. That, that then will impact this here in just a minute. An institution created by God, not man. Created by God, not man, and involving one man and one woman in covenant union for life. That's the design, right? When we talk about roles, and we'll unpack this too, uh, we're talking about men, men called to be the head of the home and the role of leadership, women as a helpmate submitted to the husband's leadership. And I, I, know, I know some of you got great poker face. I'm already stepping on some toes. We haven't even unpacked the scripture yet. That's okay. I'm good with that. I have the spiritual gift of toe stepping. 
So um, antiquated, that just means old, outdated. That's where we get the word antique, same root, right? Culturally passe, considered um, by some to be actually harmful to marriage relationships, these, these roles. And then the last part of our urban legend is social construct. And that's just a really popular label in our day and in our culture. And it means that it's just something that mankind, oh, that's not very gender inclusive, is it? It's just something that humankind made up at some point during our evolution. Uh, did I mention that I step on toes? Welcome to Amaze Road. I'm sorry. Um, it's something that we made up at some point during our evolution as a people, right? It doesn't have any objective reality or rooting in, in any objective reality or design. It's just what a group of people a long time ago decided would be advantageous for us. And, and they were more ignorant than we are today anyway, and we know better. And so we look at that social construct and we go, that's, that's outdated, it's antiquated, we need to move on from that. And so what we're dealing with... Um, marriage here, the way to go about this, the way to get after it is to go to the scriptures. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to unpack four scriptures and I'm going to give you four truths that go with those four scriptures, right? And so we're going to go from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3 to Ephesians 5 and to 1 Peter 3. So just come with me on this journey as we look at marriage from God's perspective. And I think we're going to see the myth is busted. So here's number one, truth number one, Genesis chapter two, we're in verses 15 to 25, God established marriage. This is his idea, right? So let's look at this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, it's not good. It's the first time he said that, by the way. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and had brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God had given Adam responsibility. He had given him the vice regency. He said, you're the governor, right? This is, this is your territory. You rule this. So that God didn't correct him, say, no, that's not a tiger, Adam, right? He just, he let him name them, Right. And the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, there was not a helper fit for him. So see what God is doing here. He's letting Adam come to a place of self-discovery and go like, I have great relationship with God who made me, but I noticed that the animals have, they have other halves and that, that, that seems to work out really well. Right. And there's not another, there's not another me thing person yet. And he's coming to this awareness. So the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. I may have read some into the text there. I don't know. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's just, let's just take a couple of things from the text here. One man, 
one woman, not two men and two women, not one man and two women, not one woman and another woman uh, and a house, a woman and a house. That happened in Seattle in 2014. A woman married a house. Crazy, right? Not one person and themselves not the big, the big trend right now is to go out and have a wedding and you marry nature right now. I'm like, that's not, no, no. It's one man and one woman. And then this word covenant. We talk about marriage as a commitment and sometimes we go as far as to say marriage is a contract, but it's really not those things. It's a covenant. So let me give you the breakdown. A commitment is an emotional or relational connection to another person or to a course of events, a decision that you've made. I've made a commitment to do this or I've made a commitment to this person because I care about them. That's a commitment. Okay. A contract, you go up a, go up a level. A contract is a legally binding, by, according to man's laws, arrangement. That means it, 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 it's not supposed to be broken, but it, eh, it can be broken. But that usually incurs some penalty in the process, right? So most people see marriage as a contract, which is why they work out the prenuptial agreement in advance, which is really just a guarantee of divorce, it's not I'm all in, it's I'm not all in and I realize that the likelihood is really high that this is going to go sideways and so I'd like my stuff back when it does. That's what that is, right? Then there's, then there's this other thing, way above commitment and contract called covenant. And covenant is, a, is an arrangement that's legally binding according to God's law. And it's, it's so binding that the only way out of the arrangement is the death of one or both parties involved in the covenant. Which is why, and as an officiating minister, like I probably, let's see, as a, as a musician in college and then as a friend and a guest, I've probably been, had some role in about 100 to 120 weddings over the course of my life. I've officiated probably 20 to 25 weddings. Um, I will say at some point, um, till death do you part, right? Or I, I'll change the language till um, this covenant in the vows, something about um, until, 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 I, until I stop breathing air or Jesus comes and we meet him in the air or something like that. Anyway, I'm not remembering the wording exactly, but that's, that's part of the vows that I make sure that those, those two individuals are, are saying to one another, they realize that this arrangement is a lifetime arrangement, right? Because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Till death do us part. Not just between those two people, but a covenant includes God then as another involved party. And so Ecclesiastes will say, uh, how can two walk together unless they be in agreement? And a cord of three strands is not easily broken, right? So those two people have to be in agreement. This is how we want to spend the rest of our lives in, in covenant union together. And then God steps into that union and says, I bless this. And now the three, like we're going to walk together this covenant and God's a part of that, right? And, and then there's this, and then in the Genesis text, there's this strange language. I don't know if you picked up on it. Um, God says, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and the mother and the two shall become one flesh. And you go, wait a minute. That's Adam and Eve. They didn't have moms and dads, did they? Why is God giving us language here in Genesis 2 that does not actually apply directly to the couple that are being married in Genesis 2. Because he's setting a standard of a reality for all people in all places in all times moving forward. This is what marriage is designed to be, right? 
We are witnessing the establishment of an institution that God designed and intended for humanity for the rest of humanity. And so the two become one. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate those things. Jesus would reinforce that in Matthew 19. The religious leaders wanted to no contest divorce, right? And Jesus said, no, what God's put together, people shouldn't try to separate that, right? So uh, then the best phrase, I think, in the whole text is they were naked and unashamed. Um, Love is blind, Leonard Ravenhill once said, and marriage is an (laughs) eye-opener. Love is blind, and marriage is an eye-opener. And so this marriage covenant affords two human beings, I think, the single best opportunity to recapture some of the intimacy that was lost in the fall. The intimacy with one another, with another human being, and intimacy with God. Right, And it mirrors that level of acceptance that Jesus has for us who are saved. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even as we discover hidden places of sin in our lives, as that relationship progresses, he says, I'll never, I'll never forsake you. And so in this way, the ideal of Christian covenant marriage is unique and it's astounding among all human relationships. And so Martin Luther would say this, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let the husband make the wife Sorry to see him leave. That's a great philosophy. So God has established marriage. Truth number one, Genesis 2, God established marriage. Here's truth number two. Sin makes marriage hard. Sin makes marriage hard. Genesis 3, 1 to 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know that that's not what God said, right? But here's Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's the temptation. You don't have to be under his authority. You don't have to let him be the one who tells you what is right and wrong. He knows that if you take that, you'll be in the place to know what is right and wrong and you can be him. You can take his place of authority. You'll decide what's right and what's wrong. So when she... When the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then she waited around for like 20 minutes because Adam wasn't there to protect her. He was somewhere else doing something other thing, right? That's what the text says? No? No? It says, and he was there and she gave it to him and he ate. He was with her. He was with her. He stood there. He said nothing. Don't get me started on the abdication of Adam. We'll get there. We'll get there in Ephesians 5. Um, He took and he ate, verse 7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, God didn't know where, it's not like he didn't know, right? He knew. He's giving Adam a chance to respond. This is so gracious of God. Even when we sin, he's like, here's your chance. Own it. Own it. 
right? Where are you, Adam? Uh, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, Lord, I'm sorry. I humble myself before you. Please be gracious to me. (laughs) If only. He said, that woman... And every husband since has passed the buck. That woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said, okay, buddy boy, you stand there and be quiet. I'll come back to you. Eve, what's going on? And so what does she do? Well, my head and my authority just modeled for me what passing the buck looks like. So guess what I'm going to try now? I'm going to pass the buck too. Well, what is this you've done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, Eve, you stand over there with your husband. Wait. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this. There's no questioning the serpent. He knew, right? So serpent, what have you done? No. The serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, uh, excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Do not miss the fact that, and and, and Scripture will elaborate later in the giving of the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Fig leaves are not going to cut it. Something had to die to pay for sin, even in the garden. So sin makes this whole endeavor we call marriage incredibly difficult, right? Wouldn't it be nice if marriage and relationships and spouses were just like hardware and software and a computer and you could just fix it, just download the new operating system? Um, Here's the new wife writing to tech support. I found this this week. I thought it was brilliant. Dear tech support, last year I upgraded from boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0 and I've noticed that the new programs begin making unexpected changes to the accounting module. Um, limiting access to flower and jewelry applications that had operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs like Romance 9.9 and installed undesirable programs like NFL 5.0 and Major League Baseball 3.2. Furthermore, Conversation 8.0 no longer runs and House Cleaning 2.6 just crashes the whole system. I've tried running the nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. Sincerely, desperate. Dear desperate, here's the tech support response. Keep in mind, boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, while husband 1.0 is an operating system. Try to enter the command 
C colon forward slash I thought you loved me and install tier 6.2. Husband 1.0 should then automatically run the applications guilty three and flower seven. <laughs> but remember, overuse can cause, can cause husband 1.0 to default to grumpy silence two and escapism 7.3. So whatever you do, whatever you do, do not install mother-in-law 1.2 or reinstall other boyfriend programs these are not supported applications and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program. It does have limited memory and cannot learn new applications quickly. You might consider buying additional software to improve performance. I personally recommend Hot Food 3.0 and Affection 5.3. Sincerely, tech support. If only, if only it were that easy, right? But this thing is really broken. It's really broken, not just in the software, but deep, deep down in the soul. At the root of who we are as human beings, this thing is broken. Our image of God is marred because of sin. So look what scripture says sin has brought up about in us. Uh, he says, because of this, God says to the man, you get to toil and labor and work both in your vocation and at home. And it's going to be even harder at home because you're going to have to relate to this person who's not like you, who doesn't think like you, doesn't process like you, and you've got all the work you've done all day long, you got to come home and then you got to kind of redouble your efforts to relate to this person who's not like you. And in and, and everything that you do, man, you're going to double the effort, half the results. Life's going to be hard. And so the temptation for us, the, the default setting in guys is abdication and laziness, especially at home, especially at home. We want to abdicate and we want to just check out we want to come home, grab the remote, sit down and watch Sports Center, and pretend like the rest of the world is not happening around us. And we pass the buck. And so then women, he says, ladies, sorry about this one, pain and childbearing. Um, personally, I can't really imagine what they'd be like devoid of pain, but apparently it was intended to be devoid of pain. So sorry about that. Um, but then this other piece for you is um, your desire will be for your husband but he will rule over you. That's not a sexual desire. It's a desire for his place of headship. It's a place of insecurity in your husband's leadership. It, it leads you to the place of usurpation, of seizing control and taking leadership from him. And so the curse then, this is really insidious because it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Because the more that the husband comes home and checks out emotionally and watches TV and just whatever, the more the wife says, well, if he's not going to lead, I have to lead. And the more that he sees her taking the helm and saying, well, I'll take the kids to church and I'll make sure this gets done, the more he's like, oh, cool, well, I'm free to surf channels more. And it feeds his abdication, right? And the more that he relents in that, the more that she picks up the baton of leadership and it just continues to feed itself and feed itself and feed itself. And I've seen this a hundred times in church. And so at some point, the wife will awaken to this. The Holy Spirit will move in her heart. She'll go, I see it. I see the problem. I see the problem. And she'll come home and she'll say, I put my foot down. This stops now. We're going. And what has she done? She's leading. She's leading. It's this wicked, gnarly curse where, where the man has to awaken, like he has to lead them out of the cycle of the curse and into flourishing in Christ Jesus. It's just this crazy thing that, uh, that God has, has put on humanity because of sin. It's just the consequence of sin. So God has established marriage and then sin makes marriage really hard, 
really hard. And here's truth number three this morning. And we'll go to Ephesians 5 for this one. God has appointed man to headship. God has appointed the man to headship. Now, man's headship in the marriage relationship came before the fall. There are a lot of liberal scholars today who want to say that's a result of sin. And it's not a result of sin. It was established by God prior to sin. So Paul's only writing to underscore here in Ephesians 5 that a return to God's design, the Father's design, is the only way to combat the curse. It's the only way to undo it. It's the only way to, to, to overcome it. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Not to not somebody else's husband, not to all men, but to your own husband as unto the Lord. I'll just let that stand. I don't need to unpack that. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Three verses. Now, nine to the guys. Three times as many. Watch this. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice he didn't say, husbands, love your wives, next verse. He had to express what that looks like. Otherwise, God would say, well, yeah, well, I bought her candy like last month. I love her. I said, no, no. Love her the way Christ loves the church, right? Don't miss that part. And gave himself up for her, died to himself, right? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. She would be radiant without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And now he's going to quote Genesis. Look at this, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So don't miss this, right? Marriage is a picture. Every marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. The relationship between our Savior and his people. In covenant relationship with one another. Marriage is a picture of that. In the same way that um, Moses and the rock in the Old Testament was a picture of Jesus' coming. It's a foreshadowing. So remember what happened. Jo- G- um, ugh, excuse me. God said, strike the rock, right, the first time. And Moses struck the rock and the water came out and all the Israelites were able to drink and be refreshed. And, and then the second time, God said, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. And, and what did Moses do? In his anger, he hid it. He struck it again. And God says, because you ruined the picture, I was trying to give the world of what Jesus was going to be like in his first and second coming, being struck down and crucified. And then in the sword of his mouth, he slays his enemies. He only has to speak, right, in the second coming. I was trying to give a picture of that. Because of that, you don't get to go to the promised land. And I would just submit to you that pictures are a big deal to God. Pictures are a big deal to God. And and marriage is a picture of Jesus in the church. And and so Paul's really heavy on the guys here. Three verses to the ladies, nine verses to the guys, unpacking what Christ-like love looks like practically in a marriage. Now, I really struggle with this for a long time. That's not fair. I still struggle with this um, because I have a flesh that I have to put to death every day. But the way that I viewed love as a young adult 
Well, I'll just read you this quote. Pablo Neruda in 100 Love Sonnets. I might have to do this with like a semi-Latino accent to make it really be good. Ah, I love you without knowing how, you know? Um, this, is, this is a great excerpt. I, I won't do it because I can't keep a straight face if I try to do it. He said, I love you without knowing how or when or from where. I love you simply without problems or pride. I love you in this way because I do not know any other way of loving but this, in which there is no I and no you, so intimate that my that your hand upon my chest is my hand, so intimate that when I fall asleep, your eyes close. I'm like, what the stink is he talking about? <laughs> this, this is Pablo Neruda, 100 Love Sonnets. That is a very, I think the word is schmaltz, right? Uh, overly romanticized version of love. And in my prolonged adolescence as a, as a young adult, in my perspective, I actually came to the realization that I was in love with the idea of what love was. I was in the romantic period in the 1700s. Everybody's writing these kinds of things. And it was, oh, so beautiful. And I just want to, I can't eat because I'm thinking about her all day. And how beautiful her hair looked in the golden sunlight. I'm like, that must be what love is. And I just want to feel that feeling all the time. And that's not realistic at all. It's not actually what love is, right? Guys, love is the call to the glad assumption of responsibility, men, to lead in the home, to lead courageously, right? To make decisions that may make your wife uncomfortable, but that are the right decisions to love her enough to sacrifice yourself and give yourself up for her and to invite her into the process of those decisions. Uh, If you you guys, if you come to Fight Club, you know that I'm, I'm pulling from our definition of biblical manhood, right? I'm called to the glad assumption of responsibility to lead courageously, to love sacrificially, to make war on my enemy and on sin, to safeguard the weak, to protect and serve wholeheartedly, and to nurture a passion for Christ and those around me and under my care, to attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's the call, to lead at home. And so I just took... I took about seven verses here and I just pulled excerpts. Listen to this. I won't give you the references. If you want to email me this week, I'll send you my notes. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me, right? First Corinthians. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Be watchful then and stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as you see that day drawing near. Guys, lead. Lead. Die to yourselves. Lead. And then ladies... It says, submit to him as unto the Lord, right? Again, not to all men. Breathe a sigh of relief to your husband. Uh, In our culture, submission is a dirty word. That does not mean be a doormat and let him walk all over you. It means respond rightly to his leadership. Ultimately, what it means is that you're secure and you're loved in Christ Jesus. So even if your husband's not leading perfectly, you can follow his leadership anyway because you're secure in Christ Jesus. And, and so we'll get to the ladies here in just a minute. But guys, loving our wives as Christ loved the church, 
Think, think about that. How does Christ love the church? He gives himself up. He dies to himself. And, and I would hear guys all the time, I hear guys all the time say this, does my wife not know that I love her so much I would lay down in traffic for her? I would take a bullet for my wife. And my response to you is, then do it. God hasn't called you to lay down in traffic. He's called you to die to yourself. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and die to yourself. Put, put, put aside your desire for the new gaming system or the, 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 whatever the thing is, die and then serve your family. Engage your family. Love and lead your family. So God established marriage. I think we all agree sin makes marriage really hard. And then God appointed man to headship. Here's number four. First Peter three, God calls wives to submit as helpmate. Listen to the text. Peter says, likewise, wives are to be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that means an unbelieving husband, somebody that doesn't even believe in Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, the wearing of clothes, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I hammer on the guys all the time, all the time, ladies, you need to know it. Fight Club, I hammer on the guys all the time about this stuff. So um, I, I'm not going to make up for all that lost time with you, ladies, but I am, I'm not going to pull any punches either. So let's be really direct. Um, Peter says, without a word, you can win him without a word. That is to say, you don't have to be the one to say it all the time or 50 times. You, you can win him without a word, Scripture says, if you're letting the Spirit live through you, right? Um, Husband was reading the newspaper and he told his wife, this is so interesting, honey, this article says that women speak 30,000 words a day while guys tend to only speak between 12 and 15,000 words. And the wife from the kitchen said, well, that, the reason is because a woman has to say everything twice. And the husband looked up from the newspaper and said, what? <laughs> right, right. So this is just the reality. A submissive wife is absolutely beautiful in God's sight. Absolutely beautiful. Look what he says. He, he says, don't let your adorning be external. We should, we should put parentheses only, okay? Because if we're gonna take verse three as we should never do these things, should never braid your hair, ladies, should never put on gold jewelry, you should never wear clothes. Clearly, that's not what the text says, right? Don't let that be the thing that defines your beauty. Don't let the outward be the thing that defines what makes you beautiful, he says, but let the adorning be of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is incredibly precious, incredibly beautiful to him. A submissive wife is absolutely beautiful in God's sight. And so ladies, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt and you've mastered this. 
You just said, I, I, I just, I, I relinquish my uh, need to usurp authority and I've, I've, I've submitted to my husband. What do I do with a husband who won't lead? How do I deal with that when I'm submitted to his role and I want to be the helpmate, but he's not leading? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts here on this. One major reason for this, and not all of you, but in my experience in a room this size, if, if, if all the women are saying, my husband won't lead, uh, some of you really want your husband to lead, and some of you uh, really want it to look like your husband's leading, but you still want to be in control, right? And I've seen it multiple times that when a man awakens to engagement and he comes to life in the spirit and he forsakes his abdication and he starts to actually lead his family and make decisions that are for the good of his family, that um, the wife is initially pleased with that but quickly becomes alarmed because the, the, the norm has been that she's been the one in control and suddenly that's all changing. And so it, it, it can turn into quickly uh, frustration and uh, resentment. So know what it is that you're asking for. Ladies, as you pray to the Holy Spirit and say, uh, God, please, would you, would you bring my husband to life that he might lead us well? Because when, when he answers that prayer, it's going to be a little scary for you. Um, and the difference, well, and so know the right thing is that you're actually trusting God to work through him. And God will define your inner beauty. He's, uh, he's, he's telling you to do something that's frightening, and he knows that it's frightening for you. He says, your daughter's a Sarah. If you do that, it's just frightening. It's trusting your husband to lead. I mean, she uses Sarah and Abraham for a reason. Have you read the Old Testament and Abraham's story? I mean, twice he led them into foreign lands and lied to the kings in those lands to try to protect Sarah from being taken into a harem. And twice he almost got them like put to death. And so his, his track record as a leader in the home, not terrific, not great. But you're a daughter of Sarah if you do that, which is frightening, ladies, which is to trust God ultimately to work through your husband, flawed and, and imperfect as he is. And so Peter contrasts these two things in the passage, your external appearance and the character and beauty of your hearts, which is gentle and quiet. That's a, that's a picture of stillness and peace before the Lord. Have you ever noticed in Revelation chapter five, there's peals of light, there's lightning and peals of thunder and judgments being issued from the throne of God. And it says, John says, as it were, there were a sea of glass before the throne because God's people are at peace in his presence. Even when he's issuing judgments at the world, we're at peace. There's a stillness. And ladies, that's where he calls you to be in relationship to your husband at peace. Do that which is frightening. The young bride was at her rehearsal for the wedding. She was nervous. She's having a hard time remembering, what am I supposed to do when I walk down the aisle? And the minister just said, listen, relax. It's not hard. First thing you need to do is slowly walk down the aisle. So the key word here is aisle. Okay, just say aisle. Second thing, you're gonna come straight down. You're coming straight for the altar. Okay, just there's your key word, altar. And then the third thing, when you get down to the altar, I want you to turn and look at him. Look at your husband-to-be. If you'll just remember those things, you'll do fine. And so it's the next day, everybody's at the church. All, everybody's seated in the room. It's time for her to walk down the aisle. She begins to hear the wedding music. The wedding march begins to play. And she's going through the steps in her mind. She's going, okay, um, aisle, and then the altar, and then him. Aisle, altar, him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. How, how, many, how many women have walked down the aisle with that? Maybe not pronounced mindset, but that's in the back of the mind. I'll alter him. I'll change him. 
Oh, he's rough around the edges, but give me a year or two. I'll whip him into shape and make him the man that I want him to be. And here's an example of these things in an actual person, Sarah, right? Peter says, Sarah, uh, if Abraham's the father of faith, then Sarah is the mother of holy wives. And you are her daughters if you do that which is right, and you do not give way to fear. And that's what being a daughter of Sarah looks like. Ultimately, you're not being asked to trust your husband. You're being asked to trust God to work through him. You're not being asked to change your husband. You're being asked to pray to the God who can change your husband, right? So ladies, let me just give you pray, serve, speak. If you're in that situation, pray for him. Show him the love of Christ by your sacrifice. And then when the time is right, say what you need to say in in a right way with a right heart. Pray, serve, speak. Pray, serve, speak. The best time to love with your whole heart is always now. In this moment, because no breath beyond the current is promised. Let me just say that again. For, for you guys, marriage... Uh, in the room, married couples, future married people, just embrace this reality, right? The best time to love with your whole heart is always now. In this moment, because no breath beyond the current is promised. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I can tell you, sometimes with Jenna, I've had some doozy of a fight and she has to go somewhere or I have to go somewhere and we don't have a chance to really come to full reconciliation and one of us has to leave. I always get fretful. I'm like, what if something happens? I don't, I would hate for something to happen right now because it's not resolved. This isn't fully brought back to the place of peace and, and right? I hate, I hate that thought. There's no breath beyond the current that is promised to you. And, and if you're a married person today and you think, oh, my marriage is just terrible, um, don't consign yourself to misery and don't consign your spouse to mutual misery. Um, consign and commit yourselves to holiness. Like purpose yourself towards sanctification. Consign yourself to obeying the Holy Spirit and learning to love your spouse even more deeply than you already do, that you would come to that place of desiring that. And that's my hope for you today, that that marriage is one of the best environments for building disciples who love God, love people, and live generously, right? That's our calling. God does that in marriage all the time. And and so uh, we want to be at a Minnesota community where marriages flourish and families are healthy and the church is strong and people are finding healing from their brokenness and their past. And and here's what will happen. When, When marriages flourish and families are healthy, this church will be a strong church and then our region will be impacted with the gospel, right? Our region will be impacted with the gospel. People will come to know Christ and he will begin to change lives and people in the community and it will, it will shape who we are regionally. And that's my prayer for us. So, so as we wrap up Urban Legends, I hope that you have that same vision that this goes beyond these moments, right? You carry these truths into our lives. We let them change us and shape us, not just for our own sakes. It's like everything else that God pours out into our lives is meant for other people, right? It changes us, it shapes us, and then we're to, we're to release that as a conduit and let it go into the lives of other people. So let me pray for you. Lord, that's a tall order, um, 
some really um, incredible marriages in the room, and maybe there's some in the room that are hurting or um, because of past situations, Lord, our hearts are just heavy with uh, burden and hurt and woundedness, Lord. You know every heart here, and you know best how to take these truths and apply them to each person. God, I pray you do that, and I pray you be gracious. Um, You're gentle, and you're kind as a father, and you know how to do that perfectly. So, Lord, we trust you with these things, and we just uh, relinquish them into your hands. And we ask for your grace to be sufficient for us today. In Jesus' name.